Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I've learned on the job and things that I've learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie UAI. I hope to see you there. Today, I'm welcoming our first repeat guest to the show. Sean Wang, aka Swix, originally appeared in episode three of the podcast, and we didn't even get through half of the topics that I wanted to cover. And he was so fantastic that I wanted to get him back on. In the first episode, we talked about learning in public, including how to guarantee that you get eyeballs and feedback on your work, how to figure out what exactly to learn, and how to think more strategically about your career. If you haven't already, go listen to that and then come back here, because today we'll be diving deep into those ideas and more. Swix, welcome back to Machine Learning Engineered. Uh, thanks for having me back. I had a really good time last time, so I'm excited to, to have this conversation again. Yeah, of course. And I really do want to say that I personally learned so much from the last episode of talking, into, talking to you last time. There was one particular piece that I liked a lot, which was when you said that you didn't just view technologies crossing the chasm as a as like the natural order of things. You actually emphasized that developers are the ones who take those technologies and bring them across the chasm into the so to speak common zeitgeist it's not just a 
it doesn't just happen. You have to be the one who does that kind of thing. Yeah, I think you can choose to be passive or you can choose to be more active. And I think that the career capital, the career rewards of people who, who choose to be more active, especially when a technology crosses the chasm, it is very high because you're associated with the technology, even if you didn't necessarily invent it. There's this interesting law of eponymy. It kind of states that like nothing that is popular is or people who are known for the known for a particular piece of technology or known for a law, they actually probably weren't the ones that came up with it. They just helped to popularize it. And it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to be Mr. Like super popular high school uh, football team captain or something. But you can actually, I guess, steamroll a lot of the barriers to adoption that remain around a core gem of an idea that you spot. And for, for, for me, actually, it, it really boils down to developer experience, like developer tools and uh, developer communities, which is what I've landed on as, I'm trying it out as my branding right now, <laughs> as like I help technologies cross the chasm by building uh, developer tooling and developer communities. And uh, I think that's an interesting pitch for people. Yeah, for sure. And so at this point, your book has been out for a bit, and which is, of course, the Coding Career Handbook. And so you've seen people read it. You've seen people who are in your private community. What has been, I guess, the most surprising thing about the way that people have received the book? The most surprising thing probably is that they actually quote it back to me. And that's really gratifying because I think you never really know. When you're writing a book, it's very lonely and you, it can just definitely feel like you're like a crazy person just like writing things down and who who in their right mind has any value uh, associated with that. But I think it comes from a place of having thought through a lot of things and also summarized the learnings from other people that there's so much concentrated wisdom, hopefully, in there. Like, don't expect anyone to read the whole thing but the whole idea is that if, if you get a few things that, that help you out of the book then you know i consider it to have done its job and so i really like that uh, i really like that people like people like you but then also i i guess there are others in the community who just yes yeah, who just virally share it like i have well, one guy basically he's my salesman into his boot camp alumni class and they they have a very active Slack, and he just he keeps pitching uh, the book for me, so I don't have to do anything, and I just get sales from uh, Hack Reactor, which is one of the well-known boot camps, and so that's really nice. And uh, yeah, but I, I think like the, for for me, the most part, I just hope that people are exposed to ideas that they may not have been before, and apply it and find it useful in their careers. The problem with a book like this is that I very much stay steer clear of promising some some quick wins. Be a senior engineer in three years, like. You might do that, but it's not about that. It's more about what are principles that you can take with you forever. So I'm very keen on that. But it's also a harder sell because then there's no like immediate ROI to pitch. But I think that enough people are willing and patient enough and interested enough in self-improvement and, and buy into that message of no quick wins, but like here are some quick wins. And I, I think, yeah, it's always gratifying. Like the other day, I, I just I just had another sale of someone paying for the, the top package, the creator package. And I just, I didn't know this person, had never heard of them, but then they trusted me enough that to take them on that journey. And I take that as a very high responsibility. Like, I think this is this awesome honor and practice to, to try to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
I like how I really like how you emphasize that part about you do want to be playing long term games. It's even in your Twitter bio in in some form, and yeah, the, it does seem that the majority of career books are just focused on okay this is like what you should Crack do the coding interview <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny i actually have that holding up my monitor at this moment <laughs> because once you're done with the interview are you done no <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but yours is the one of the only books specifically for developers that goes into looking at each stage not only at each stage but having the general philosophy of okay, you should learn things and then put them out. And through learning in public, those are the small bets you're making. And from there, you can have a more informed view of what the public wants, what the demand is for particular technologies, instead of just like devoting your entire career to one area and you don't even know if this is something that someone could possibly uh, make a, even make a career. And you're like getting that validation in a sense. Yeah, a little bit of the MVP approach. A lot of startups like the minimum viable products idea. Why can't you apply it for testing out directions that you want to take your career in? Those are very valid as well. And the most, the most viable products, the minimal viable career is you writing a blog post about something you're interested in. And if that takes off, then you write more and you write more and then you make into a talk or you uh, write a library around your idea and you develop into its own thing. But the minimal viable product is blog post. <clears throat> so, the, I mean, that's one of the principles. Uh, I definitely don't mean to make this learn in public the book because I, I put that, that blog post out there. So I do try to, you know, put in other principles that I think are, are valuable. We talked about strategy a lot the last time, and I really appreciated that because I think a lot of developers don't think about strategy. They just think about, I am a developer now. Let me apply to the companies that will pay me the most. And they don't really think about skating to where the puck is going, where they fit within the hierarchy of like how business derives value from technology. And hey, maybe you should, you should pu push yourself towards technology that will uh, be very popular or be increasingly valuable bets because you're a consumer technology yourself. And so those are interesting ideas. And then, and then the final part was tactics, right? Like the, the whole idea that within, your, within individual jobs, there, <clears throat> sorry, within, even though we're playing long-term games, having a good handbook for short-term games is very handy because uh, a lot of times we don't get a lot of opportunities to uh, practice very often. So one, uh, I actually had a friend I was, I was uh, advising over the weekend. He had four or five different job offers, but only about two were serious. And I was guiding him towards negotiating because he was like not going to negotiate at all. And I was, you know, and then I just like basically mouthed the entire chapter to him um, on negotiating and just well, just went you know if, if any of this actually even translates to the five thousand dollar increase in your annual pay like this will be worth it and you can charge whatever you want for your book and i, I think it's i think it, it really behooves engineers to stand out for themselves because we this image or this like self-image of oh that's something that other like business types do i only stick to code and that doesn't serve you very well because people are taking advantage of you for sure. <laughs> yeah, that the point about negotiation is so interesting because I definitely do see a I felt it myself of you you feel like selfish in a, in a way in terms of like you obviously you're asking for more money, you think you're worth more than what they're paying you. And some people just can't seem to to get over that. Do you have some sort of what like 
could you say to someone who is struggling with feeling selfish about asking yeah. for more money? Yeah, I can give you the, the quick rundown. First of all, you never really make money just for yourself. You probably have family that you, you know, want to have a better life with. And, and so you, you got to look after them as well. The other thing is, is that you are also make, you're also fighting for your future self. The, the, salary that you, um, the, the, sal- the salary that you can negotiate now starts as the basis point for the future salary. So every single little bit that you negotiate for yourself today, future you was going to benefit a lot from that, just from the compounding effects over time. The other, I think the other thing to also be very aware of is that usually the people that you're negotiating with, like, it's not their money. You're not taking $5,000 out from their pockets, putting it into your pocket. That, that would be gross and mean. Instead, you're taking it from the company coffers where there's a budget set for these things. And you don't know what the budget is. They know way more information than you do. They just by, by by sheer fact of interviewing way more people than you are. Like there's a huge information asymmetry. And the, the only thing you can be sure of is that they budget for people to negotiate. So out of the box, they probably don't make you the best offer that they could be making you. They're, they're waiting for you to, to do the negotiation thing. It's, it's just a, a thing that people do. Some people, a lot of people will say that, we, oh, we don't negotiate. Oh, this is the best offer that we do. We, we're very upfront. They all say that, okay? They all say that. At the same time, they all also make adjustments. They're not, try, they're not trying to lie, but they're lying. Um, they all also make adjustments for, for people who want to negotiate. Um, and I think it's a mark of a, someone who, who knows how this game is played it's a mark of someone who's who's in demand and is a business professional to be able to negotiate. And a lot of times, especially if you're negotiating with a recruiter, they have a number on this job description and you're not at that number yet because yeah, they, 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 they budget this thing in, in mind. Or even if you're like interviewing at a startup, like it's coming from the VC coffers. Like you're, you're very rarely negotiating directly from the pockets of the person that you're going to work with. Yes, that would be very awkward. But I just, I just definitely want uh, people to um, fight for what they, whatever they can, they, the, the best that they can get, because it really compounds down the line. And the other, the other thing I, I think is also important is that by the time you're talking about money, you're actually at the later stages of negotiation. You should be doing as much as possible to be leveled correctly, whatever that means. If they have you in for a software engineer two, and their band is only like, you know, twenty thousand dollars or equivalent wide, then you're only ever going to be able to negotiate up or down by whatever $10,000. But if you're able to justify that, hey, like I'm actually off a different band because like this other company offered me a senior title, like what are you going to do? Then they might bump you up into a different band. And these are things that happened. And I talk about some of these. For those who are interested, check out Hasib Qureshi's story, uh, getting 250K in total comp coming out of bootcamp uh, because they bumped him up to a different salary band. And at that, to, in order to do that, that's that's not something that everyone does for sure. I don't want to gaslight you into thinking like, oh, you're doing everything wrong. No, I just stand up for yourself and bring everything that you have. Like you are special in some way and anything that gives you that advantage uh, that makes you very hard to replace uh, because it's very hard to hire en- engineers as well. You should remind them of that. You should remind them of all the value that you can bring, of all of every bit of information that they tell you about what they need, you can use that against, uh, you can use that in your favor. Hey, like I'm such a perfect fit for you. You should, I'm worth a little bit more than the average engineer off the street, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of negotiation framing, but I, I think for me, the, the main thing is that I just want people to ask more. So for example, for my friend who, who was advising over this weekend, he had five 
offers-ish. Two of them are like iffy, but he had three firmer, firm, firmer offers. And my tactic for him was like, just use the, use the bottom three as target practice, right? Now practice fighting for yourself, practice doing the uncomfortable. Like he's a super nice guy. And like the problem with nice guys is that we're all pushovers and you just have to practice having the uncomfortable conversation because this is the only time that you're going to get it, get, do this conversation. Because once you're in the company, you're like on that employee path and you only get you know revisions every, every so often. So yeah, these are limited gains, which have very long-term impacts and you deserve, you owe it to yourself and owe it to your future self and owe it to your family to, to at least try to play it. Try to try to do well at it. To give you an idea of like personal personal negotiation, uh, like when I was in, when I was interviewing to join Netlify, I got my offer and I had no other offers. And the only thing I did was send an email back saying, "Hey, I I think I would be able to get more elsewhere. I think an increase of you know, ten thousand a year in options. I think I actually I'm not sure exactly how the conversation went, but I think I, I like asked for more. Like I read all the I read read all the negotiation advice, pumped myself up, and I, I asked for more. I don't know how I don't know exactly how much I did it, but they ended up giving me uh, ten thousand a year more in options just with that one single email because they they already were planning to give it to me if I asked. So that was a ten thousand dollar per year email. So that's a very high ROI thing. Then when I joined Amazon, same thing, but then this time I was actually going through interviews with comparable companies. And I think having a best alternative to negotiate argument and BATNA, that really helps you increase your negotiating position, especially if you're with a big co-recruiter like Amazon, <clears throat> because they love to say things like, oh, we stole this guy away from Google. We stole this guy away from Facebook. For me, I was also interviewing Extract. Yeah, the total back and forth, it took about a month, but it was another $50,000 a year from the initial offer. And that's an extremely high value. One month of just emailing back and forth a couple of times. I had a couple of phone calls. They were awkward, but I just powered through it because I knew that I was fighting for myself. And it's the only time that you get to do it. You, you only do it, hopefully, you know, every two, three years. But yeah, you're going to work hard anyway. So might as well work hard to, to make sure you get paid uh, for, for what you do. Yeah, I was working out the math once with someone on a spreadsheet of what your hour, effective hourly is from <laughs> negotiating. And it turns out to be some like just super high, insanely stupid Ridiculous. number, like $10,000 an hour, because it, it really doesn't take that long to do. Uh, it's mostly just like writing yeah. emails, having talking on the phone. So yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And something else interesting that I think, I don't remember who I got it from originally, but if you look at if the company you're working for is a public company, you can actually look at their 10K. And if it's mostly developers oh, yeah. in their, who are their employees, you can just look at that line item of revenue, profit per employee. And for Facebook specifically, Facebook makes $1.5 million per employee and not all of those are developers. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, senior management take a lot of money. <laughs> so <clears throat> average numbers only mean so much. I wouldn't go too crazy with that. I think for big codes, the bands are actually way more available. You just go to levels.fyi. Um, so I have a whole bunch of links and we can drop the links in, in the show notes. But essentially, like there are a bunch of other information points that you can gather as well. So definitely know what you're worth. Like Glassdoor is one of those. They, the numbers reported on Glassdoor just take note that they tend to be on the lower level. So use that as the floor. Levels.fyi tend to be higher. So use that as like a ceiling of sorts, but you can break that ceiling. There is the H1B database. So for anyone hiring foreign nationals working in the US, they have to actually publicly list 
the compensation that that they are paying for that job. So you can just pull up the company and go, what is you know, if 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 someone else works at that job, you can just pull up the company and go like, what you know, and, and look it up. It's public, and you can find it pretty easily. Obviously, that's only cash. And then most, as you get more and more senior, then your compensation is more and more in stocks. That information, that piece of information gets less valuable over time. There are other salary calculators as well. Buffer used to have, Buffer has one open salary calculator. GitLab used to have one. They just actually, they just like today, closed source it. So you, you don't have access to it, but you can find old versions of it. All of which to say, like, these are all, you know, interesting data points and you can use it in your negotiation. Hey, like someone of my background experience and location would deserve about this much, uh, but they're never going to be as good as a real data point from someone else actively trying to hire you. So, because that's specific to you and yeah, that one you can actually take to the bank. (laughs) I like the point you make earlier about making sure that you're actually in the right level, about how the salary within that level is just the last step. Yeah. No, no amount of negotiation is no amount of negotiation is going to overcome being leveled wrong. So levels right make sure you're and, and and that conversation actually starts from before you even apply for the job which is a whole thing like the negotiation negotiation part is the last mile all the way before that is like how unique are you making yourself because then people will come to you and when you when they come to you instead of you coming through them then they need you a lot more than you need them and that makes for a much better negotiation position when it gets down to the line the, the earlier you start in this process the more options you're going to have how would you suggest that, say, someone frames the discussion early on in terms of getting to that desired higher level? Can you repeat the question? I don't feel like I got it. So if you say that someone who wants to make sure that they're leveling themselves at the right, the right place early on in that conversation with the company, with the recruiter, are there specific things that you would suggest that someone do right from the start of that having that conversation to make sure that it's easier down the line? Uh, Yeah, I think having a sense of what kind of, what what their engineering ladder is a big help. So essentially, if you can get like the the grid of the rubric of what they consider in each position, usually every position is going to have a range of seniority of what they're willing to consider. So you want to be on the senior end of that range. And typically you look at like, all right, a lot of it's just like industry expertise, like ability to, to lead a team, any sort of relevance of like I have impact and I'm, and I'm pretty senior type of data point. Make sure to bring that up in the in, early in the conversation and give that impression that you're as like your most senior face, put your most senior face forward. This, but it's like we're all junior in some things, we're all senior in other things. But I think of the um, of the amount of confidence that you present yourself and, and the way that you uh, present your cover letter or your resume can, can definitely help in that. Being being friends and being in the, a group of other extremely senior people will definitely look good for you. And the way to do that is to speak at conferences because uh, it's actually you know surprisingly easy to speak at conferences after you speak at a bunch of meetups. Uh, and most people who, who speak at conferences are well-known and, and if your face is like always among them, they just assume that you're as senior as them when actually you might not be. But you're, senior, you're as senior as them in one thing, which is conference speaking, but people transfer the, the expertise and, and good for them. So like there are a bunch of like, tricks like that ultimately you're, you're never i'm not you should never lie but you, you're definitely allowed to put your best face forward and to present yourself in that framing uh, and i think it's especially for especially true for underrepresented people where if you're 
a woman, people might think automatically think that you might be more junior just from their unconscious sexist bias. You do need to stand up for yourself and assert your experience and your, your authority. And the earlier you do that, the more people will, will not mislevel you. And, and then that's, that's very important. On the topic of public speaking and being able to get into those sort of conferences, I've heard you say, other people say that essentially people hate public speaking so much that being able to do it in whatever niche that you have for yourself is just like, is essentially a superpower in terms of being able to not only spread your ideas, but also build your own personal brand. Was there a, was there something that really made it clear to you that this was something that you wanted to pursue? I don't feel like there was a point in time at which I realized that. I just always knew that it was a good idea. And then the question was just a matter of like, how good would I be at it? I I knew it was a good thing to try. So I just tried it and I didn't really think about anything beyond that. And then you slowly realize the value over time. So I started out speaking at meetups. So I was in New York City, a couple of meetups every month. And then I got invited to my first conference. And so that was, that took about eight months. I spoke at that first conference and then I, you know, started speaking at more because I think that went well. Like you're speaking, especially if it's recorded online, that becomes your calling card for the next conference and the next conference, because it helps conference organizers be more sure that you, you are, you're going to be a good speaker for people. So, yeah, I think you, I really realized that the benefits when um, I, I started being able to use the things that I talked about at work. Because I had, so the, the logic goes like this, because you're speaking, you're standing in front of a room of other developers, like you're, you have maximum skin in the game. So you're going to do a lot of research because you made that commitment. And as a process of going through that research, you're going to learn a lot more than you would have otherwise. And you're also going to have it basically memorized. So when it, when the time comes without preparation, people will, and the topic is relevant because you're interested in it, a topic comes up, you're going to sound extremely smart because you did a whole bunch of prep. And people don't realize that, oh yeah, this person just, just learned it for the talk, but you learn something for the talk. And then it turns out that you actually learned it for your, the rest of your career as well. So that's, that's very interesting. There were a couple of times where I actually got things wrong in the talk. And the interesting thing about developers is that they'll come and correct you. Same, same thing as the learning public idea. And again, having been wrong in public, you remember that forever and you never learn, you never make that mistake again. So I think you just accumulate a bunch of scars, a bunch of, you put your skin in the game and, and focus and do deep research on a topic and do the best talk that you can. And you become a more articulate, knowledgeable developer as a result. And you happen to also build your network because um, you're, it's not just you speaking, it's also other people around you and they're going to view you as a peer auto- automatically. So that's, it's only good things. When you're first starting out, obviously a, it seems like a big issue of people is not only the fear of public speaking, but also the question, what should I talk about? What would people find interesting? Is there a some, what advice would you give to someone who is stuck on that question of what they should talk about? Yeah, I have a bunch of, I basically have a process for this, which is in the book. So A, yeah, so first you start by watching a, a bunch of other talks to get a sense of what do developers, other people that you admire talk about, uh, and get a sense of what's possible out, out there. Then you speak at a meetup on something that, anything that basically interests you or that you just learned about. And, and then I have a bunch of ideas on topic selection. The main requirement is that you have to be 
it's it's like it's this nexus of interest again like you have to be very interested in it because you're going to spend a bunch of time on it Um, and then you and then other people also have to find it interesting because if you have a very bored audience then i'm sorry like that was there just was not a good topic (laughs) i don't care how interested you are in it so you have you need to have a bit of a nose for what other people are going to find interesting and typically it's going to be like how can they take this whatever you're speaking about and apply it to themselves right what's in it for me uh, and if you fail to make that case, and if you're just off in your, like, I've sat through this talk. It's the longest 30 minutes of my life. But this guy just talked about Redux Saga for 30 minutes and just showed code after code. And I was like, I was never going to use this in my life. And I don't want to see this guy ever again. And it was a terrible talk. And yeah, like he, he just, people, some people fall in love with their own code. And you need to make sure that it's not about you. It's about how can your audience benefit from the things that you're saying to them because ultimately they're not going to care about they don't really care about you they, they, they care about themselves how to how to make that connection for them so then there's there's this idea of a genre so i have a bunch of ideas that basically we're telling stories during a talk like it's part entertainment part education and uh, we need to fulfill both at the same time like all storytelling genre like all storytelling we we do some genres so there's the war story like something that you did and you overcame some well-known difficulty and this is how you did it. That's a very straightforward, these are the facts. You are the world expert in how you solve that problem. You don't have to be a global expert in how everyone should solve that problem. Library framework or product launch. If you worked on a demo or a library and then you want to launch it, that's also great because you're the expert in that. How-tos. So like how to X and Y, how to, yeah. But those are very factual. No one can really argue with you if you just get the code working. That's a win. Introduction to X. This is really easy. Meet a father. Like I've, I've seen introduction to TypeScript, introduction to color theory. These are all really cool. What's new? So like just take a few major release, a few recent releases and just cover news. And again, like these are all super factual. No one can argue with you. Like this, these are just like facts and just all you got to do is some research. You can do some live coding as well. That's a higher risk type of talk because the, your code can fail. But because it's higher risk, it's like watching a circus act, right? Like but, but someone could die. Therefore, you're, you're just automatically you know, more interested in it. <laughs> and because we're all developers, like we're actually following along. And it's very nice when like I, for example, I mess something up in the code and one of someone in the audience actually calls out the fix for it because they've, they've been like sitting on it for a while. Like when's this, when's this idiot in front going to get it? But it also means that they're following along, which is fantastic. The other benefit of live coding talks is that these are exactly the kind of skills that you need to pass, to do well at technical interviews. Because in technical interviews, you're essentially asked to code and speak while you code because you're allowed to go silent for a bit. But like, it's better, it's more impressive if you can verbalize uh, what you're doing as you're doing it, what you're not doing uh, while you're doing something else. The, and, and also to flag the things that you're about to do before you do it to show that you have a very strong plan in place. Uh, and these are all skills in, in life coding that you develop over time. Yeah, I have a bunch. I can keep going, but I feel like I've, I've uh, taken <laughs> yeah, up too much yeah, time I'll, on this. Uh, once again, direct people to go buy the book and definitely uh, brainstorm, write out all the ideas that they could possibly do. You- talks on yeah you also pick these up just watching a lot of talks right like i my youtube watch history is 500 videos long and uh, every time at lunch or i'm on the treadmill just pick a talk and watch it mm-hmm. and you just absorb by osmosis like what are good ideas in, in the talk and you, you build your own style eventually how have you found uh conference speaking and uh, meetup speaking in the covid era where almost everything is remote do you find that there have to be different topics or different types of ways that you present yeah, I'm typically talking about the exact same topics, but I think 
the ways you the way you present is definitely different. I'm finding that there are a lot of conferences actually doing pre-recorded talks. So typically the talks are live performances, but it's typically you're at a podium and then there's this thing on screen and then people just watching, going back and forth between you and them. Whereas for online conferences, especially a lot of them want to do pre-recording. Mostly, actually, the, the main reason to, to do pre-recording is just the elimination of technical issues. If you send them a video ahead of time, they just play it. There's no, oh, can you hear me now? Is, there's no there's no Zoom thing. You can you, And you even know the exact time they'll, they'll end so they can actually schedule things correctly. So there's no possibility of running over. So all these are just like very good things. So conference organizers are overwhelmingly preferring pre-recorded talks. But it is more work on your side. Because you have the chance to pre-record, that means you're not allowed to make mistakes anymore. You can't just go, you can't just have a bug and just like waits five minutes just like trying to fix your ID. You you're you have I, I even go to the point of adding it out ums. Like I say um a lot. Uh, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll absolutely do that. And it opens up new opportunities. So if you're doing something that takes takes a while, you can actually just cut and then fast forward. The other the, the other thing that people that I've also started doing is basically a lot of people have their again have their screen right recorded and then their faces on the bottom or something like that. And it's just static there the whole time. That's transferring the live talk paradigm into the pre-recorded talk paradigm. But because it's pre-recorded, you can do interesting things. Move your face around or do snazzy transitions or snap a, new, snap a quick logo or meme on top of it. Just I think that the walls of YouTube and conference speaking are merging. And because it's no longer, it doesn't have to be live anymore, you can definitely take a lot more opportunity to do that. So because it's pre-recorded as well, then I'll be in the audience while the conference is ongoing so I can heckle myself like, oh, this speaker sucks. And it's, it's just funny. But then also you can drop director's commentary, give people a reason to, they're, they're watching the talk, but because they're there live with you, give them some benefit. Like you're answering questions uh, live in real time. You're dropping like references, like links as you say it. And these are things that people just love uh, because this is like the extended director's cut of what the talk is. Interesting. Yeah, that's, it is wild how so many different different styles are enabled by being able to have those talks pre-recorded. I'm reminded of there was this incredible talk given at uh, VimConf by this one guy who, it like you said, it's they're all pre-recorded. You're expected that you don't have debugging issues in the middle of your live coding, and he actually played off of that by introducing a bug, making it seem like it wasn't actually making it seem like it was just on the fly. And then showing his whole debugging workflow through that and incorporating that into the talk itself. So the things like that are are really interesting. Yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, anything to break the monotony, because uh, for sure people are just sitting at home like this on an uncomfortable chair like this for eight hours. That's not a good experience. So you, you got to break it up. And uh, yeah, people try all sorts of really creative things, and we should definitely do that. But yeah, for sure, it's... It's a very constrained artificial environment. I'm definitely looking forward to going back to in-person events. Also, you don't only have to speak at conferences, right? If you're in a small group in a workplace, do a, do a lunch and learn, and then just do a, do a quick talk right, on, on that. Like, it really lower the stakes and get comfortable with just speaking and preparing for talk, getting familiar with the tools. Do you like to use PowerPoint or Keynote or Slides.com or whatever? A lot of developers waste time building their own slide presentation framework, by the way. My recommendation is to not do that because then you can focus on the content of your talk. So yeah, get, get familiar with all these tools of the trade as you do it. Mm-hmm. And so this is having conference talks and having the blog, learning public in general. This is all under the 
the framework of of learning in public in order to have luck find you. And this is a topic of one of your blog posts that you had mentioned to me at the end of our last podcast, which was how to create luck. So I will pair it to you, one of the questions that is put to in that blog post, which is how much of your own success is due to skill and how much is due to luck? I think if you read the, the blog post, which by the way, I think it's going to be a future chapter because there was a bunch of chapters that I cut and this, this is one of them. I think the main idea that I wanted to convey in that is that you have kind of skill at creating luck. It's not an either or, it's an it's a and. And I definitely developed some skill at creating luck for myself. <laughs> That's all I can say to that, man. I, I don't believe anymore in skill or luck, skill and luck. This is something that, like you say in the blog post, it's a, it seems like a weird concept when you first hear about it, but when there actually are quite a few people talking about how exactly uh, people go about and create luck so much so that there's even, you even have a drawing categorizing the four different kinds of luck. How do you, and you said that you've quoted this so many times that uh, this is why you wrote the blog post. So what are those four kinds of luck and how can we get better at creating more luck for ourselves? Yeah, I think the main mental model that most people should try to have is this two by two matrix of like how passive versus how active you are, you're being, and then how general and how specific uh, that form of luck that you're being exposed to is. So passive in general that is like passive luck. It's the same luck as a plant has if you just don't move and if you just simply exist and some fortunate drop of lucky water falls on you, that's luck that you just received just by existing. It's available to everyone and you don't have, you didn't have to do anything for it. I think privilege, the fact of being born a certain way in a certain country, that's also a form of very passive privilege luck. And obviously a lot of people are born without that and they have to overcome their situation. Then there's active luck. I'm doing all these by, from memory, by the way. So I, let me get the, the, the exact names wrong. But the ac- active luck is luck that a plant cannot have because a plant cannot move around. So it's this idea that you just expose yourself to more serendipity just by moving around more. Like you don't really have a goal or intention in mind. You just move around more and maybe you'll find you happen upon something. And that's, you definitely have a better shot than if you just did nothing. Uh, and I think a lot of people, that's motivational enough, right? Like just do something every day and you, you create more luck. It's true. It's true. It's just not very targeted. And again, it's available to everyone. So it's very general. So then there's this question of like specific and passive luck. And so what does that look like? I think a story that really appeals to me and I think that's most commonly cited is how penicillin was was discovered so lewis i forget who, who they, was it was it pasture probably someone else I, i'm gonna i'm gonna really regret this once i once i figure it out but whoever discovered penicillin discovered it as a pure accident right like they were testing for something else completely different and they just noticed some mold growing on their lab sample and but not anyone Sorry. So like anyone walking past and looking at it would not have recognized that as something valuable. He had to be in that specific state of mind, having had seen this problem nine years before and having made the connection and then having had something completely random happen to him because this piece of mold just happened to fall in his lab and happened to grow and happened to have uh, a noticeable side effect. He noticed noticed it, even though he wasn't looking for it, and then followed up by testing it out and 
confirming that he actually had found something very extremely lucky. So there were only a few people in the world that were, that like this luck, this random thing happened would have would have picked up on that. Uh, but he wasn't in a good place to actually spot it. And so that's a very specific luck, like the luck of the luck that favors the prepared mind. Now, so I think this is the family of quotes that you hear about when you say like fortune f- favors the prepared mind, or like luck is what happens when determination meets preparedness. Or some some a- anything to do with preparedness, anything to do with okay, who do you look up to? Let's say Elon Musk. If you were if you had the good fortune to be trapped in an elevator for two hours with Elon Musk, would you? have anything to say would you have that's a one in a billion encounter would you have anything of value to say to him no um because you weren't prepared but if you had prepared if you had these questions of what would you game it out or, you don't have to specifically prepare for that scenario just having at the top of your mind what would you do if you ran into some idol or what, what are some important problems that only a billionaire can help you solve then when something ha- lucky happens to you you're way more prepared to actually pick up on it so that's specific passive luck because you're not really going out and looking for it, but when it happens, you're actually very ready, uh, more, much more than the average individual. So then the fourth quadrant is the one that's like the weirdest. It's called magnetic luck, uh, where you are so, you're, whatever you're doing, it, it actively doing, is attractive that you draw luck to you and luck becomes your destiny because people know what you're doing and they, and Whatever lucky thing happens to them, they forward it onto you. Hey, you guys should meet because you're working on the same thing or whatever. Because whatever you're working on is attractive or magnetic is is what I call it. Draw luck towards you. And I think those are the four kinds of luck. That's one of the mental models. I think the the main hole in this, which is the model that I I preach at the end of the blog post, is this idea that there's no strategy in this picture. There's no, in this sort of map of luck there's some places which are less lucky and some other places which are more lucky and the clouds are moving in different directions because i'm, talk- I'm talking about rainfall as it's kind of like luck so you want to go to where there, there will be more rain and that's the what's what, what you really want to develop is a it's an ideal strategy like where are things going to be more valuable and you want to go ahead to <laughs> where there will be more luck so yeah hopefully that wasn't too long of a digression no definitely not it's it's really cool to see a like a complete breakdown of how these different things, how these different types of luck emerge. And it really does crystallize the why learning in public is different. Because if you're just being passive versus being active, you can clearly see like the the spectrum of where things would be, of how you would be increasing your luck service area. So for example, you have, by having those blog posts out there, whenever someone, someone will be looking for that and they'll forward it to someone else who may be is able to take advantage of that and then contact you with maybe their opportunity for exactly that. And this is, uh, would you consider something like that to be in the magnetic category? Only if you're like actively working on it. I, I, I think there's some amount of like gradients to this. It's not, it's not a binary either or thing. It's like a little bit of both. So I, I consider the magnetic thing to map very closely to the learning gears that, that I also developed where you're mining for a specific thing and you're building, building your career on one thing and making and solving something, some hard problem that everyone else in the world wants you to solve. So they turn from wanting you to fail into wanting you to succeed. And they give you all the resources and time and connections in order to help you succeed. And I think that's a very magnetic, that's the platonic ideal of what a magnetic luck looks like. And then you can have different variations in that. For me, yeah, so this actually happened to me. So I wrote, I'm mostly a front-end serverless type of person, and I'm not that knowledgeable in like sort of back-end cloudy stuff. 
but I had this idea and I wrote it down in a gist. I didn't, I wasn't even confident enough to publish it in a blog post. And so I wrote it down in a gist. Someone who was reading my writings actually commented in the, in, in my, my gist telling me his perspective, his take. He wasn't telling me I was wrong. He was just like adding more color to it. And he was obviously way more knowledgeable than I was. So VC saw his comment and was like, hey, I think you're an interesting hire. And so he got him hired at a job just based commenting on my blog post. So obviously then he, when he got hired, he turned around and said, can we hire me? So then he you know, got in touch with me to have that conversation. I did not end up joining him full time, but now I actually have a side gig consulting for that company purely because of a gist that I wrote. One like a year ago. And I can show you, I can show you that just it's all in public. And it's totally weird because I think I was just putting the signal out there that I was interested in this problem space, even though I had no credibility whatsoever. But like I had a rough shape of it. And that attracted other people who were interested in the same thing to also comment and hire. And then it eventually trickled down to me. And I think it, it worked for me in that one really super random scenario. I, to be clear, this does not happen all the time. But if I had not done that, I would just kept it in my head, then it would never have happened at all. When you have ideas like that, uh, I, don't I know. think your audio. Sorry, my, my headphone audio just died for some reason. Okay, yeah, it's, I think it's back. All right, you're able to hear me? Yes. We're going to have so many audio issues, by the way, since we're, since we're taking on a brief break. So I, was, I just realized that I wasn't recording my side of the audio for the beginning parts. I'm hoping that you have something recorded on your... Yeah, you yeah. have the Zoom. So yeah, that's, I have that's two fine. different just that... backups, actually. So yeah, we should be good. Because <laughs> I pulled up my QuickTime and I had the audio recording thing and I thought I was done. You know, I, I thought I clicked the, the thing. And I, then I, what is it? I, yeah, you're going to have a hell of a time getting <laughs> these things together, but... Hopefully, hopefully the Zoom audio is good enough. Yeah, yeah, it should be. They added like uh, original sound feature, so it's actually uh, fairly good by now. Cool. All right, so let's see. Yeah, so sorry for that really random tangent, but yeah, I have a side gig, Temporal.io. I'm a product manager, charging a ridiculous rate just because I can. Again, that negotiation thing, because they came to me uh, and they wanted to hire me full-time and I said no. Then that was like, how about part-time? Then, then they're like, yeah, fuck yeah. I'm sorry, I just cut that swearing part. But, you know, it was, it was just one of those absurd things. I was like, I, this is too good of a story. I got to take this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially since uh, exactly for this type of blog post, it's something you can just definitely expand upon inside of the book. <laughs> the thing, like the, th the the weird thing about doing this for a while is that the, the situations get kind of, kind of so crazy that like I, I start being shy about saying these things because even though they're factual, they kind of just sound like bragging. When I really, I just want to inspire people. This is how life is when you do this for a while. So I, I have a blog post in me somewhere that I want to write someday, like three years of learning in public. This is how my life changes. And yeah, it's, it really does change quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing once you realize the, just how many people are on the internet and are developers who are looking for these kinds of things. We talked a little bit about in the last podcast about the like 90, 99%, 1% rule where you have only 1% of people creating content. And even then, most people say, oh, there's so much content out there. It's so saturated. But there's 99% of people. There's 100 times more of them that people who are actively reading content. And so just by putting yourself out there, just by increasing that surface area of luck, those 100 times more people are able to see your content and they can all, like you say, or like you've experienced, make those connections to people in their network, make those connections to what they're working on. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally. Um, and and the other the other aspect to note as well is that the sheer amount of backgrounds means that there's probably a, a more unique post. Like you you probably represent a generation uh, of backgrounds of developer that the existing content available doesn't cater to very well. If if you're like a, a hardcore like Dota two gamer, and and you you came across this perfect blog post explaining how like TensorFlow is exactly like Dota two that blog post was meant for you. And like, likewise, you know how to speak to you, people of your exact unique background extremely well. And the just the sheer number of like combinatorial output of like backgrounds plus technology equals to more than 7 point whatever billion humans on the planet, which means there's definitely a space for you to just figure out how to express yourself. Yeah, this is some, I've recently been going on the, down the David Perel rabbit hole. And I know that you've gone down mm. a similar one because I see your comments under some of his videos mm. and as yeah. an aside, it's just, that's, a, that's another pickup what they put down type, type of thing. Did we talk about this before? We didn't talk about David like Perel, when... but we did talk about pick up what they put down. Yeah, like when YouTubers are small, always leave a comment to encourage them because you're one of maybe five people who do it and they notice when people who are their fans early on. Okay, interesting. I will definitely have to... Uh, I don't think I've ever commented on like any YouTube video ever. So uh, yeah, maybe that's something Yeah, because like no one does. You're, you're exactly <laughs> like that. People are so passive and usually there's shit comments. So like anyone who leaves a somewhat helpful comment that actually shows that you watch the thing immediately stands out. And like the one time that you catch something or you give value back, then you become a, a friend and a peer. And so that's an interesting, obviously don't, I, th- I think it's unhealthy to always senpai no- notice me. You're not doing it. It's just, it, it doesn't, it takes us, it takes a few seconds to just write down what you thought and maybe something good will happen. It's a whole luck thing. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, even just the, like responding to people on Twitter, I've noticed that. So I'm trying to grow my my own Twitter account right now, and it's something that was actually inspired by partly the episode that you and that you and Randall did, and on why developers should always use Twitter. And it's funny because from the outside, whenever people talk about Twitter, they always say, "Oh, it's just like politics, flame wars, and developers arguing over this, and people getting canceled." But once you actually curate your feed, and you are only seeing you're muting certain terms, you're only seeing people who you who are like kind, who are not thinking like you, but have similar mindset, are interested in similar things. And by responding to them, if you actually are able to add insightful comments, even on extremely large accounts, you can not only get eyeballs on that, but even make deeper connections through, through those DMs. That was something that was really surprising to me. Yeah. Or even just ask a good question. Do your homework, ask a good question. You don't have to know things to contribute value. Be professionally ignorant is way more scalable than to uh, build a brand of knowing everything, because uh, it's always more impossible to know to not know more things than it is to know things. <laughs> but no, I, I think yeah, for sure, it's a good networking tool, which is which is pretty funny because a lot of Twitter developers will similarly crap on LinkedIn, where but there's a vibrant developer community on LinkedIn as well, and you just gotta pick a platform that really you know speaks to you, and then connect with mentors that might be on that platform, and you you're career is going to grow for sure because they, they have more opportunities than what to do with. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying about how each person has their own, it's like a Venn diagram. It's like each person has their unique background. They have the things that they're currently interested in. And then it's also the medium, the content uh, platform that they're on where they can take in effectively their their extremely unique worldview in just that. So as an example, I 
really don't get Instagram, but I know that there are people or developers on Instagram who are just making these insanely popular accounts just by sharing memes, spreading cartoons, and these like these these visual aspects of explaining complicated engineering subjects. Yeah, I think obviously Instagram biases towards a more visual uh, type of person, and it's good for that. It's a huge platform. I think something that is maybe not obvious for, for people starting out on this is that when you're this is a high, this is a rough hierarchy of how expertise evolves. When you're a beginner, you judge you judge everything by its size. Biggest equals best, right? Biggest follower count, biggest subscriber count, whatever. Biggest equals best. Like tweet with the with the most likes. That's that's the best tweet. And it's a very beginner way of thinking about things because you own, you don't know what to tell. You, you don't know what to think for yourself. Therefore, you let the platform tell you. Then the other then the intermediate left tier of expertise goes best equals best, meaning that. You always, you're never satisfied with anything that's like mediocre and you won't accept any, we are, we're on legacy technology. And like I said, no, you always must be on the best practices at all times. And anything that is, there's not best practice is below you. And I think then, I think for me, like where I see most people, you know, usually end up is that they, they come, they kind of scope their judgment. They, they stop judging everyone because <laughs> it's very tiring and they just go like best for me is best. Right, like best given my situation is is good enough for me. That's good enough, and then it's totally acceptable for someone else to have a completely 180 different differing opinion, and the two of you can get along. And I think the more people that we can get past that beginner stage, get past the intermediate stage, and get to a place where we can coexist, I think that will be a better society. But I don't have any hope that we'll get there very soon. Yeah, it's a. This is going to be a little bit of a, of an unrelated tangent, but there seemed to be the previous media model was always you have one TV that has like just a few different channels that are all covering the same events. And like you, people were not connecting to each other. You only had a few radio stations. You only had a few newspapers that, and now, and so the model for them was very much of, we need to cater to everyone and every, because they're, they want everyone to be watching theirs instead of everyone watching someone else's. But now in the age of the internet, there's so many people, so many connections that you it's really just not possible to connect with absolutely everyone or else they'll just go to someone who is right for them. Because obviously if you are yeah. right for everyone, you're right for no one. There's probably some insightful quote about that. Yeah, there's not really a question there, but but that's no. It's it's just an observation. I think I, I, it saddens me as well that companies when they treat when they approach marketing and social media, they're definitely at the beginner stage of oh, whatever's biggest is the best. And I really wish that we would get past that because it's just so unhelpful and it's just it's it's like the worst of capitalism combined with like the worst of human nature. Uh, and it leads to things like racist to the bottom. It leads to things like, Oh, you were talking about machine learning. Are you familiar yeah. with the story? Yeah. A uh, total fraud. And, but like he, the, he started out. Okay. He started out decent. It's just that he felt the pressure for numbers and no one forced him to do that. This is the platform made him do that. And this mentality that biggest is best made him do that. So we can just get rid of that mentality, which is a healthier ecosystem all, all around. Yeah. And speaking as a creator, it, it's it's so hard not to look at those numbers and not to try and just make them go up and to the right. Do you have some sort of like self-talk or bigger perspective on n maybe trying not to just pursue those numbers? 
Yeah. So I think I don't have a self-talk. I think it's just more this idea that I have that I kind of cling to, which is quality over quantity in, in this respect. Um, in other respects, I think quantity leads to quality. But in this respect of evaluating your work, quality over quantity and quality of engagement. It doesn't matter if you have 100,000 people who, who vaguely know you. It actually matters more that you have 100 people that you very well, who, who love you for what you do and who are you know peers that you can lean on. That's good enough. How many do you need, man? It's like, just stop trying to take over the world. So like, I very much value the people that I connect with on Twitter. I think I can last my whole lifetime with them. And it's good enough for me. If more come along, that's, that's like, I think some amount of social proof helps to establish that you're not nobody, that you should be, you're not some rando who has no skin in the game. Because I think when something that social proof helps you do is establish reputation so that you have something to lose when you assert something, you criticize something, you're actually putting your reputation on the line. You ha- you're, you are, you're not just some random person spotting off someone. But you come from a place of, I have this established relationship I, and, I, and I've done some uh, things of note in my life. And I'm saying this, the people take you more seriously. That is good currency. But beyond that, then it just is this race to the bottom of like how many what's the lowest common denominator I can appeal to. So that's great. But if you can, if you can pretty much gain access to anyone at the top of the field, at the top of your field, then I would say you've made it. And I don't care what number that is. I just like, do you know the right people? And so as long as they're engaged and they're happy with you, I see you doing a pretty good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something that I've been trying to as I try and define what I want the podcast to be, what I want the, how I want to exactly to define the niche that I'm operating in, there's like, uh, I can know exactly that, but that you should just niche down and dominate your own niche first before expanding. But it, you really do feel the pull internally of you're seeing all these other people, like you said, the beginner's mindset, oh, this person has 10,000 followers, that should be me. And instead, yeah, I like the, I like what you're saying about just focus on serving your tiny slice of your audience uh, and adding as much value to them as possible so that they love you before you even consider going bigger. Yeah. To be clear, I think if you do the right things, you eventually get there. And it always is helpful. It definitely opens doors because people immediately take you seriously. And that is some, that is worth something. But there is a certain bar beyond which the you know focusing on incremental reach doesn't matter. And I think, yeah, so I, I, you know, hopefully that helps. But I think I, I, that's why I definitely mean it when I say that, for example, like the, the last interview with you, that was one of the most in-depth conversations I had. And therefore I have no qualms whatsoever recommending this to everyone I know, because you do your research and you think very deeply about these things. So you have a fan in me. Um, and I think if you keep doing this for other people, I think you're going to build that base. It's not that hard. Just be patient. Keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. Thank you. Thank you. And to make this, try and make this a little bit more useful to the people who are listening, it. Everyone, like we were talking about before in the last episode, you have everyone does have that ego. They have that need to be recognized, and it's you're constantly having to fight that, having to fight your own psychology of not only just wanting to be big, but like having the FOMO of oh, this person's doing YouTube, this person's doing TikTok, and instead you just have to gather all your strength and say, no, I'm I'm just gonna focus on what yeah. I'm doing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> To switch to a slightly different topic, I noticed mm. in your Twitter bio that you are angel investing. 
Yes. Is that something recent? And is that something that you're able to talk about? I think I can talk about it. I probably should not. I'm trying to just be respectful of not bragging or whatever. So, yeah, I think at at a certain point in your life, you have a good amount of income. I made it. I'm probably on track to make something on the order of 400,000 this year. And I don't need that much money. So I think there's one amount of, there's some amount of wisdom that I've always kept in my back of my mind, which is that there's nothing more addictive, addicting than the paycheck. And really like the ultimate game in capitalism is to own rather than to rent out your time. And so and I've definitely been thinking about making the transition to investing more and to put my money to work. A, a lot of it just sits in the bank. It's not really doing much. So like whenever, when I had this, I've only angel invested in one thing. And obviously now I put angel investor on my bag. It's so obnoxious, but it, I invested in one thing. I am looking for more though. If anyone is interested in running an interesting machine learning startup, hit me up. But it's, yeah, it's this idea that I think I'm interested in technology and, and I think that I would like to help uh, startups fund, even though right now is the easiest, like I'm actually thinking about starting something because like people throwing money at startups, like, like no other, it's ridiculous. But yeah, I can, I, I'd love to do my part. I want to be invested in in the startup ecosystem. And this opportunity came along for Circle. And Circle is, so, okay. So Jomi, should I talk about the, the startup? Uh, <laughs> okay. There's a general thesis of unbundling the university. People understand, realizing that universities are a sham for the most part, and we could, you know, break it out into online learning. And a lot of it, especially in tech, like you could teach in a three to nine month boot camp. So what is the, what are you paying six figures to a university for? Yeah, I think so. So that's happening. And especially for COVID, it's happening for, it's really sad, actually, it's for the mid tier and like the lower tier colleges. But it's just a fact of life. They were not contributing that much real value anyway. So a lot of there's a lot of transition in education from in-person to, to online. And I think the first waves of that was like Udemy, teach I, I, what's in the what's in the tier Udemy? Uh, Udacity. Now Udacity uh, is a little bit higher up. Coursera. Coursera. Okay. I mean, I mean those there's a little bit higher up. But you, you get you get the sense of like there, these are places where people teach online and that you get your practical education there. I think the the second wave of that is okay. A lot of these are just like Udemy is like lowest common denominator stuff, right? Again, hundred thousand buys the course, they never watch it, or like it's like two hundred dollars, but it's on sale right now for nine dollars. That's a ridiculous a joke of a platform. But but like this is all content, it's all passive, passively consumed, and there's no responsibility for you to actually get the material. It's just like you bought it, good, now it's yours. Like good luck. So I think people are uh, realizing that they need workshops or they need TAs. That's just the second part of the university education. They have the lecture, then they have the TA to make sure you get the material, like to go through the work. So I think some of the, the courses that I've seen are doing that. What's his name? Tiago Forte. Yeah, building a second brain. Building second brain. A circle community. Uh, he hires TAs. Yeah, exactly. You've, have you done? Yeah, uh, yeah I've done building a second brain. Oh, okay, cool. See, so you understand like the guy's TA is to, to help uh, scale himself, but then also bring, have the students have get more out of the experience by having those discussions rather than one to many, just like you watch the video and then hopefully you got something out of that. So I think that's the second step of unbundling the university. But like the, probably like the biggest part of the university that is not replicated in this new online world is the community around around the course. Like 
the, the buddy that you sit next to and just, what are you working on? And yo, I don't, I really don't get this. Can we have a chat about it? And that just is more peer-to-peer rather than peer-to-TA or peer-to-instructor. And I think probably that will be a very valuable part of this whole new online learning type of experience. And there are a few platforms that are catering to that. And I think Circle is going to be one of them for a number of reasons, mainly because <laughs> Tiago Forte already uses it <laughs> together with Smart Passive Income. I forget his real name. A bunch of, they've been doing this for a while and they all pick the same platform. So that's an interesting in- indicator. I think what's interesting for me is that it's basically Facebook groups, but not Facebook. And there's a very strong desire to not be on Facebook. So they only have to be, they only have to build a competent, not Facebook to become the next Facebook. And it could be a very interesting play because I think in general, social media, social networks, and we had this phase of one network for everybody and we're all connected. We're seeing the problems with that, with doxing, with like political hate, whatever. And, and people want more private communities where they can be a bit rawer and it's more focused on a, on a particular thing rather than like you scroll the feed and and at any given point it could be a baby photo or it could be like the world about to end it's a huge yeah it's not good for you for for mental health so people just want more focus and want more privacy fine let's give it to them in the form of this this platform so i actually opportunity came along i think i just like just asked the guy i was like hey are you raising uh, and the guy was like yeah you want in and i was like yeah and then a few weeks later i was poor by quite a bit of money but hopefully it's going to work out if it's if it doesn't i think it's money i could afford to lose but i think it's just an interesting idea to like Look at the startups that are around you. These are people actively trying to do something with their lives and just go, do I, how much do I believe this? Do I believe it enough to actually put that money to back them? And that really f- forces you to, to question your beliefs about where what's going to happen in the world. And I, I really like that. Obviously, I have my background as a professional public markets investor to, to lean on, but this is very different. This is very speculative because most of the revenue doesn't even exist yet. And there's no public audit of accounting, like they could just run away with the money and I'd have to be okay with that, so on and so forth. But it's just an interesting game to play and uh, I'm just starting out to play with it. Again, as part of my random total luck creation, I'm also a scout. So uh, a popular VC, Jeff Morris Jr. runs Chapter 1 VC and he noticed that I'm very passionate about dev tools and I have an investing background. So he actually invited me onto his scout program. So what a scout is a VC basically says, okay, we, we like you. We like the, the, the opportunities and ideas that you come across because you're part of these developer communities more than we do. So we're going to give you a deal. We're going to say, hey, if you see anything interesting, tell us. If we invest, we're going to give you half the profits. So it's no money down from me. And if something works out, I get half the profits. Uh, It's a pretty good deal. Nice. Yeah. It sounds super interesting. And like you said, you have pretty much the uh, similar background in terms of investing and also specifically with Circle SO, you're, so to speak, staying inside of your circle of competence because you're already building. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) Yeah, literally. (laughs) You're already building these communities. You're a developer evangelist for your day job. So you already have some sort of. Yeah idea of the flow of how these the, of how these things are happening yeah so the challenge becomes then becomes investing in what you know is like the the typical advice but i think to really there aren't that many things that have opportunities like these don't come along very often and you probably need more deal flow like you need to probably be looking at two to three deals a month and it just doesn't happen within your circle of competence so you need to get comfortable investing outside of your circle of competence um, and having a view on 
the, the broad strategy of things of which you don't actually know all the details of. And that's a tricky field to play in, which I, I will eventually have to do. I'm keeping, I keep watching in a, in a bunch of things. I, I noticed that there's a trend uh, that a lot of startups, comma, both comma.ai and fast.ai, moved from TensorFlow to PyTorch. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting, is TensorFlow failing? And what, what does that mean for, for Google? But you know, not directly investable, but just I try to keep trends on, on what people are thinking and saying. Oh, I should also probably mention that I, I think when I started my my book, like uh, one of the one of the interesting ideas for entrepreneurship is like the, the pieces of advice for entrepreneurship that I really like is just build anything and then you find more problems as you build whatever you want, what, whatever you're working on. So for me, I was building a book and I was trying to sell books. So then I had to get familiar with book building platforms and I discovered that they all suck in some small ways, which was completely unacceptable to me. But I had to make my piece and actually find something. But like in that process, I discovered that there's a hole in this market that if I ever wanted to, I could go fill and I would have customers like me. Same thing with fulfillment. I tried Gumroad. I tried Podia. I tried some others during, during my evaluation process. They all sucked in some small way. And, and I was like, if I were ever do this for myself, I would build a platform that I would want. And hopefully there'll be more people like me. So I think this, this is an idea. Uh, so so that, by the way, that's how I came to Circle because I wanted a place to, I was selling access, community access to, for people who read the book and wanted to talk about the book with me, with other people who also read the book. And the best place I could find for it was Discord, which is like a free chat thing, which like, yeah, like hundreds of people who actually bought access didn't even show up because uh, they're, they, they're just not on Discord uh, by nature. So I was like, okay, there's a hole in the market for a community tool. And then so uh, when, I, when I found Circle, I was like, oh, this is perfect for that. So uh, I, like, I would have become a paying customer and I've since become a paying customer. And it, it's just it's very clear for me what the, what the hole in the market was. So I think if you know that space super well, you can try and invest in it. I definitely think that to scale, you need to start being comfortable with investing things of which you don't know or anything about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so interesting. And look, like oh, let me sort of bring make it more relatable to to people. Like when you're working, you're also investing your time. That's the most valuable resource you have. You're investing your time in the startup or whatever company you're working for. So you you probably also want to cultivate that investor mindset in in the the employers that you work for too. Yeah, it's super interesting that uh, VC returns in general, it's so different from public markets investing in that if you look at how, for example, first round capitals return, they were pretty much just like grinding down until Uber exited and then they returned 800x on that investment and now they're up like 12 times of their initial capital. So it's just, yeah, it's a really crazy game and definitely, like you said, it sounds like it, it could be fun too fun to do there's actually a post i try not to think about uber type investments because those are really just lottery tickets like you bought a lottery ticket it worked out like that doesn't mean you should go buy lottery tickets but i think the one that really sticks out to me is uh, this post on hacker news i think about two to three weeks ago and it was this guy who was regular software engineer no name like just nobody and he was an early engineer at Facebook and he took some of his spare cash and he invested it as an angel investor. And, and because of no name, like he, he didn't really get particular deal flow. It, it was, he was just like in some angel list syndicates and stuff like that. And basically long story short, like he tripled his money investing and it was way more interesting than investing in the S and P and it was more lucrative that it worked out for him in that scenario. And it quite conceivably it could have turned out a lot worse, but I was just like, yeah, that seems like a better use of time than, you know, giving money to companies that don't need it. And, and you get to be part of the story. It's just like such an interesting uh, field to play in. But you definitely, yeah, you could lose it. You could lose everything, not for the 
not for people to actually bet their income on. Yeah, the point about not give not giving it to companies that don't necessarily need the money if and it's not just that issue, it's also the issue of the forward returns don't look so great. The GMO asset forward asset flat asset class forecasts for they're always bearish they've been bearish for 10 years like I, yeah i've read those reports <laughs> <laughs> okay interesting yeah i've seen the there's a research paper like looking at them and they tend to be like directionally accurate uh, the magnitude i'm sure but there i don't think anyone can argue that about that investing at current s p prices is uh looks super enticing but anyway to for the i like what you said about viewing you're not just investing your money but inherently in your job you're investing your time and so it should really be something that you carefully consider and i saw a really interesting lecture that you took a lot of notes on your website this was by yeah. Andy pa- posh yeah i don't know how this, to pronounce this yeah, how, <laughs> how did you find this because this was this just seemed like a gold mine of, of different ideas of how to invest your time yeah, so Randy gave one even more popular lecture than this one uh, called his last year, and it was about how to achieve your childhood dreams. That was very, very well achieved on uh, YouTube, and it's been so popular. He's given interviews on that on that talk <laughs> before he died. Yeah, he, he, you know, it's his last lecture because he was diagnosed of terminal cancer, but he was so happy, so positive, uh, and so sincere in passing on lessons for his children that it's, it leaves you with all the best feelings in the world. So that's why that's why it's a very talk. So I saw that. All right, that's cool. And then I saw his second most popular talk, and that was the one on time management. Uh, and I knew that's something that I needed to better at. Um, so I learned in public on time management. I just watched the talk and I wrote down things that appealed to me. Uh, and then it appealed to a lot of other people as well. I think I, I have like something like 10,000 people, uh, other people have also read it. At least on Dev2, I, I, you know, I, I syndicate my posts on Dev2 and my personal site. Um, so yeah, it's this idea that, you know, everyone has, you know, we, we, we are really good at, <laughs> we're not good at managing money, but we're better at it. We're better at accounting for it than we, than we manage money. Um, and it's, and we, and I think I really like the phrase that he had starting off, which was, um, "We are we're in like a time famine." Because he just surveyed his audience and he he's go like, who, "Who feels like they have too much time?" Nobody raised their hands, right? Um, and everyone feels like they have not enough time. And it's weird because like we obviously waste so much time, <laughs> uh, and it's like the most limited resource that we have. So so it's worth at least a little bit of introspection as to how we manage our time and how I can get better at it. And so, yeah, I took notes, I shared it. The other thing I also always tend to do is I'll take style notes. So content notes and then style points at the end, right? Um, Why was it such a well-received talk? Um, What are the ways in which he delivered it that really made it come across? And I think in my own training for for how to be a speaker myself. So yeah, it's always like content and then the style of the content. Yeah, what did you think about the, the talk? Yeah, I took so many notes on this one. Notes of, of your notes, too, actually. The the time famine thing was super interesting. It's such a good term because is in your note. No one says that they have too much time. And uh, I want to be respectful of, of your time for this. Uh, I know that we're at the end of our, our, of our time block. So are you able to continue? For yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Cool. Definitely for one thing, one, one thing that I like from uh, someone else, Naval Ravikan, he definitely says, like, be too busy to do lunch, but always available to, to do something actually important. Uh, I, I'm mangling the, he says something like, be too busy to do coffee, but always keep your calendar available. Uh, and, and I like keeping my calendar there for things I really enjoy doing uh, and then 
to not say yes or turn down things which I uh, find you know not that important that I can resolve in other ways like you know a communication. Long story short, I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, the biggest thing that I took away from the talk was one the Eisenhower matrix. I'd I'd seen it before, but I I'd never really used it that much, and so I actually made a like a, a sticky note that mm. I um I put on my monitor just to remind me that you should always stay focused on the things that are actually driving not only your your revenue but like your that things that are making you happy instead because i i have realized that you're you end up chasing so many different rabbit holes of in terms of content production of oh i could use this tiny tool to do like this thing marginally better but oh it's probably just better to focus on getting better guests on the podcasts or or prepping, or just, yeah, prepping, investing way more time into the actual preparation. Yeah, no hesitation to that. Uh, I just, I find it interesting that to-do apps, like I was like, should I make a to-do app that has the Eisenhower matrix? Like, how come this doesn't exist? Because <laughs> all the to-do apps, I use Microsoft to-do. And it's just like a straight list of, of stuff. And I was just like, well, where's the important, not important? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've actually, I've... <sighs> Man, I could talk about to-do lists for a really long time, but I, I, I'm such a nerd on this, all this productivity stuff. But the solution that I've come to is just using Notion. I have uh, my own setup that's that because you can like tweak all uh, the right, different right. databases through everything. It's like a no-code platform. But but that's probably another one of those things that isn't the best use of your time. It's it's definitely marginal to to be micromanaging your own task management to that level if it makes you happy go for it but yeah absolutely there's a lot of productivity porn this makes me feel happy and yeah you know there's there's you got to be critical about whether it actually is making you more productive or not but yeah it's totally valid to make yourself feel happier so whatever i don't use notion because it's too slow for me so that's it's too much loading spinner i just want it to work but yeah no I, i think time management like that was just a really good talk like and even then try to criticize it how would you improve the talk so there are parts of it where I, I felt like the slides weren't really um, in touch with what he was saying, or it was just wasn't as organized that, as it was. So even though, obviously, he objectively did super well, but I think having some critical mind helps you go through the exercise of, if you can improve his talk, then you could improve your own. Yeah. Oh, that's a fascinating mindset. Yeah, it goes back to what we we're talking about with critiquing your, with watching lots of talks if you want to do your own, and then finding things that you can pick out of those, finding things that you want to that you want to avoid in each of those. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make it more relatable, right? Even for engineering, even for coding, read, read through open source code of people that you admire. Some of it's going to be shitty. Some of it's going to be amazing, but you're going to learn either way. And you're going to be a better coder out of it, just reading other people's code. And I feel people always treat open source as like, I can consume it for free. But the other underrated part is you can actually learn from it and read it for free. And that's a really underrated part of open source. Yeah. In, You'll, uh, in the last podcast, you, you talked about how you think that machine learning, actually, we know more about machine learning than we do about actual learning. And when, at the time that you had said that, I was like, well, wow, that's weird. I've never thought about that. And then ever since you've said that, I've seen so many parallels <laughs> of how this works. And when it's funny when you bring up open source software, it reminds me of the, so the section in the book about co- of cloning open source apps. And in in one sense, it really is just deliberate practice of Oh, you code this, you like design the whole architecture of this, and then you can just look at how they did it and you can figure out what you did differently. 
And in the same way, you can for e go into each module and micro look at the micro scale of exactly the things that you did differently and try and figure out to some level exactly what, what those differences are and the trade-offs between them. So that's super interesting. So many opportunities. I feel like people who lack inspiration, they, can, they complain like, oh, I'm stuck in a rut. Like, I, I just, I'm not inspired. They're just, they're just not trying hard enough. The world has so many opportunities. And I feel like if, if anything that I have a natural gift for, I think I'm just really excited by technology. I'm also excited by history in a sense of both, like how did, how did we get to where we are today? But then also the things that we, are, that we have today, this is not the final state of things. Where can things go? And I think if you just constantly try to answer those questions, you'll never be bored. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, I know, at least in machine learning, every, it seems every week there is some insane new paper and that, that comes out. And it's more of the problem of information overload rather than things not to get, uh, not to get too excited about. But uh, yeah, the way that I, I think information overload is very real. And so first of all, give up on knowing everything. But second of all, have a filter of like, a, it's like almost like a filing cabinet of this is the way, this is what I'm interested in. This is where my hypothesis for where the world is going. If does this match against any one of those? If not, throw it out. But if it does, file it in there because it suddenly became relevant. And I think the more, it's it's not about the amount we consume because I think we we tend to, evaluate ourselves on, oh, I read 52 books this year. I read a book a week and therefore I'm, I'm very good. Or, or I read a hundred pieces of content uh, today and therefore I'm better. And if I read 200, 3,000, 1,000, I'm, I'm better than just reading a hundred. That's again, biggest, better thinking, which is terrible. It's more, and it's more about what pieces of information can you absorb that you will use for the rest of your life. So it's very much was, I think I have a, a piece on Lindy, the Lindy effects, right? Is this, is this actually, is this foundational material that I'm going to reference the rest of my life? Then that compounds my ability instead of being like a leaky bucket where like information comes in, then I forget it. And I feel stressed for that time that it's in, in my head, but I don't really grow as a result of that. So we get, we got to change the way we consume. And I think the part of the way we change, we consume is we consume in order to create, we consume in order with an action in mind instead of just passively consuming for the sake of consumption, because there is no end to that. How do you, to make this a little bit more concrete, how do you do this for yourself? Do you, we've talked about building a second brain and of course that's a, it's pretty Evernote based. So are you, you using Evernote and how, what does your workflow look like in ter because obviously you do put out a lot of content. Yeah, I'm insecure about the future of Evernote as a company. They always seem like they're dying. So I don't trust them. I tried Notion. I was, I, I was like, oh, should I be like the Notion for developers guy? I tried that for a bit. Then I hated Notion because it's too slow. So I'm not doing that anymore. Ultimately, I tried OneNote. OneNote's, OneNote's actually perfect. It's free. It does device sync and offline sync. The only problem with it is it's ugly as hell. So I can't show it off. So, you know, that's out of the window. Again, like this one, like everything sucks. So you're going to make your own. Anyways, one thing where I'm actually converging on the most is Simple Note is a startup that got, that got acquired by WordPress. And it's a free app that does just notes, no rich content, just text. 
therefore the editing experience is simple. Like in Notion, I constantly mess up what's a block and, oh, I'm, I'm like rearranging this when I didn't mean to. Sorry. And Simple Note just doesn't have any of those fancy features. It's just a place to store text and it will be safe forever and it's free forever. I, I probably would pay for it. It's just, it happens to be free, so why not? But I like the simplicity, like cons- the constraint of only it, it being text forces me to just focus on the quality of what I, I write. And, and yeah, but it's important. So my note, I think I think I may have written this somewhere in, in one of my books, but it's important to me that it's offline available. So I don't need an internet connection. Notion will block on just like random, like I, I need to refresh everything. So it's, I need zero friction from a thought arriving into my head to getting it down on paper because I'm going to forget because I, I just don't have that good of memory. And, and yeah, so it needs to be offline sync and then it needs to be available on all platforms and someone does that. So I like that, but definitely, I'm, I'm definitely you know, subscribing to Tiago's idea that it doesn't matter what tool you use, it just matters that the, the, the workflow and are you getting the results that you want out of it? If not, then change your tools. But if you are, then good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find that I just, maybe it's tough because, because the nature of a podcast is such that you're not really coming up with, the host isn't really coming up with their their own like original ideas. You're not really preparing other than preparing guests for guests. You're not really pulling things from your own second brain so yeah i definitely think that i will probably try and do some sort of like just pure creation creative activity like uh so like writings for example you're drawing from those ideas something of that sort how much i don't know if this is something that you've ever thought about but how much of the content that you store in in that is something that you eventually end up using in your writing 50 percent there's a lot I throw away. There's a lot that just never gets beyond this random throwaway thought, or I just look at it in the future and go, I don't remember what I was thinking when I wrote this and I'm sorry, but it's gone, which is actually a really sad thing, by the way. Like when I take notes, I don't give myself enough context so that when I look at it in the future, I, I don't remember what I was talking about. And it's, it's sad because like I previous, like it's on that scene, like Memento, that movie, like pre- the past you thought it was important. And you like wrote the number there. It's just, I don't know what the number is for. And it happens in a, a depressing amount. But anyway, so yeah, there's a lot. I, I think there, I think that you should have some filter as to like the, what comes out of you. I definitely probably have too low a filter. Probably need to raise it. So David Perel has this recommendation of like you write every day, like five five times a week, but you publish only once a week. So that means you end up throwing away eighty percent of whatever you write, or you're editing so much that whatever comes out of you actually is is worth reading. And I, I like that a lot. I just don't feel like I'm at a place where I can practice it just right now. So I'm skewing towards the other side, which also a bunch of other creators do, which is publish every day or write every day. And I, I feel like I could do that. It's, it's simple enough that I don't need to keep a running counter of, is this the best of my week? Is this the best thing? I don't, I just write it, just put it out there and, and let people decide. So I think that's, I think that's good enough for me. I, I definitely feel like intelligent people get too much in their heads and then they don't put on anything because they can argue both sides and argue all day long. So it works against your own interest. And so it needs to be as simple as possible, whatever uh, gets you out, gets your ideas out there. And then the only thing that you have to do, because then you've set your production function, your output function in that fixed mode. Then the only thing you have to do is to, to tweak your inputs and your creative process in the middle. And that's just always what is the most interesting problem or question that you could be answering or solving at, at, at that point in time. And yeah, just keep improving that and your audience will follow, your quality of output will get better and you will enjoy life more. You feel like you're living better 
I, I think I'm living better when I'm interested, when I'm invested in more interesting problems. When I like am involved in like very mundane corporate BS, I don't feel very fulfilled. I'm definitely always pursuing what's the most interesting problem that I could be pursuing at, at any point in time. That's super interesting. This, especially that very last part about how it's it is easy to get stuck in if you're not doing anything creative, if you're just at your job, working your job, if that's not going well, it's pretty easy to just get wrapped up in it. And to start to to wrap this up and talk specifically about what you're doing right now, of course, your official title is developer advocate at, at AWS. Is that correct? At, yeah, yeah. And I know that all these developer advocate, developer evangelist positions mean, they, at least in my experience, my limited experience of looking at it from the outside, it seems like a lot of these companies have different roles of what these positions actually do. So first off, is that correct? And if it is, like what specifically is entailed in your job? I don't think it's super different from company to company. It, okay. it, may, it probably varies a lot, but uh, I don't think it's very different. It's mostly the combination of marketing as well as product feedback. That's and, and different, like it could be 75, 35, some one way, and in other jobs, maybe 25, 75, the other way. So yeah, the gist of it is that uh, there are a lot of tool, there are a lot of companies that market to developers, but developers hate being marketed to using traditional marketing methods. So what you got to do is you got to hire other developers to talk to other developers, like by developers, for developers, that, kind of, that sort of thing, to be more relatable. And the annoying thing is that you got to pay them like developers because they could be developers, but then you got to find people who can talk, who uh, can make things approachable. And so that's hopefully a little bit more of a premium on, than the regular developer. In practice, I don't think that actually has worked out yet, but I could definitely see that the, because it's not viewed as real engineering work, like I'm not making as much as I could be if I was working in AWS as a real developer, air quotes. But I think it's I think it's a good one for being paid to learn in public. So now I didn't have to know any AWS coming in. I just had to have this. I just had to be able to convince people that I can learn and share what I know and bring people along with me on the journey. And people will pay happily pay you for that. Uh, and I think that's a good brand to have, which means that you can take that with you to whatever I want to learn. I can just say, oh, this is what I've done before. And yeah, I had total, when I was looking, when I was evaluating other jobs, there were people who were, who were considering hiring me where I had no background in the projects or the company that they, that they worked in, but they weren't, they were okay with that because they could see the meta skill of that I know how to learn in public. So I think this is obviously a growing category. And yeah, I think it's a good gig you could, if you can do it. It does tend to be a little bit of a terminal career in a sense that you're not a real developer. People look at you funny if you try to go back to real engineering. And you're obviously also not qualified to be an engineering manager because you haven't been a developer before and you don't manage anyone. I think that's fine. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. But I think probably a lot of developer advocates go on to become instructors because you go from teaching for a company to teaching for yourself. And the maximum upside you can get from teaching, if you're good at it, is, is way more if you teach it on your own. I think the estimates for West Boss are something like two to three million a year, and you'll never get that as an employee. So that's pretty good. And then the other, the other aspect, the other career path that people go down is uh, from developer advocate to product manager um, because the other the other role of the developer advocate is you give product feedback right like uh, you you're the voice of the developer within the company you hopefully represent and know the user base really well that's something that technically the pms should also do but the pms are busy wrangling business requirements 
and internal engineering uh, issues that sometimes is helpful for developer advocates to, to come into the picture. So that's something I, I perform as well. That's a function that I perform. So for example, something that I'm doing right now at AWS is that I'm noticing that a bunch of feature requests all come in and they're all in different stages. They, they all have different problems, but they all have the same kind of problem. And so what I'm doing is grouping that up and saying, hey, all my PMs are facing all these issues. I think I need to escalate this. So I'm the one to call it out and go, hey, I think we need to throw an exception, go up one level of abstraction, go one up one level of management and go, I think we need to change this organization in order to ship the kind of thing, the experience that we want to ship. So that's a call that... You have to have a little bit of balls to, to say, basically, like, this team is wrong. But I think that, that some of those moves, if you're right, can be the most effective things that you do because you're designing the system in which people work in in order for the end goal to be ultimately reached. Uh, and I think if you just keep people laser focused on the end goal and, and you're right on that, everything else falls into place because uh, it's then it becomes very clear that the way that we're set up today is not delivering the, the results that we want. Therefore, we must change. So if you're the person to call that out, I don't care what job title you, you have, that's a position of influence within the company. And I think it's pretty interesting to exercise as well. So these kinds of things take year, take a year plus, like it's a long running thing and it's not visible externally, but hopefully it's, it's something that shows up over time. So yeah, yeah, I think developer advocates could become PMs. Yeah. So I, I discussed this kind of career trajectory in my, in the chapter on what happens after you stop coding for a living and you start you know, managing coders or you start designing products for coders, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of churn for people who, you know, who I think when you join engineering or you join, like you, you identify as a developer, you just imagine yourself doing that for the rest of your life. But then probably after 10, 20 years of doing it, you realize that the people really drawing the strings, the pulling the strings are doing other things. <laughs> and sometimes you might be interested to explore those things. Or you might be like Jeff Dean and Sanjay Gemawat, who they might my, my go-to examples for super senior ICs who never have anyone report to them. They just are ex- excellent engineers and they want to stay that way. So more power to them. Yeah, it's so fascinating. That specific part of your book where... I think I never even considered that I would do anything other than just like always be a an individual contributor. But like you said, it turns out that most of the people, once they get past a some sort of some certain threshold, they end up going into into non-coding roles, like you said, that are making some of those decisions. Yeah, it just it's a fact. Like otherwise, there'd just be way more people with 20, 30 years experience, and there there aren't. Like look around you and whatever job you are. Like most of them have under ten years experience. So where where are all the people gone? <laughs> Usually, they're just general code enabled humans that do other stuff. And it's you. It's you're the chump coding day to day and never looking up for your keyboard. Who's smarter now? That kind of thing. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not saying if you code, you're you're chump. But there are definitely other a lot more opportunities that are open up that don't involve 100% coding all the time. Yeah, that's exactly what some other what one of my friends was telling me, who's like a bit farther in his career. He said you should at least consider the possibility of going into another career, just so you don't like make the mistake of completely pigeon pigeonholing yourself as this is like the only thing that I do. Yeah, I also think like it's. Yeah, just in, ter- in terms of where you are in the economy, I think it's just a fun, intrinsically more valuable p- position to be in if you can tell developers what to do than develop yourself. And if you can organize developers in such a way that they produce really good economic outcome, then you deserve to make more than them. And, and I think that's a very interesting outcome because I think a lot of developers work on things that go absolutely nowhere. 
So yeah, it's developers are a scarce resource, and if you know how to manage them, then you come out really ahead. So it's a, it's an interesting idea because like at the same time, you need to keep enough of a technical ability to to know what you're doing, because there's definitely case examples of business people who hire developers and just run their businesses into the ground because they, they have no idea what they're doing. So I, I, I don't know. It's a, this is a very sort of vague, hand wavy conversation, but I think it's true that I definitely try to make the the, the the case that developers should know how their code makes money. If you're interested at all in making money with your code, there's a long chain from bytes on digits on screen to actual money being received in a bank account. You should. Those are your economic dependencies. You have code dependencies, but you also have economic dependencies. You should check your dependency graph there and, and make sure that you don't have vulnerabilities or that you're using the best dependencies that you could be. <laughs> yeah, and also the part about how there's different parts of the value chain and some of them end up, for whatever reason, capturing all of that value. I, I saw some stat that like, 80% of the VC money that goes into marketing in a startup goes to Facebook or Google in advertising. Oh, it's so ridiculous. Oh my God. Yeah, so it's just fast. Yeah, that's, that, it, it's, that's one of those interesting things that like AWS as well, is it a better bet to invest in the startups that basically take, turn around, give all the money to AWS? They, they don't give all the money, but just it's, it's weird that, uh, yeah, sorry. I, I have a lot of thoughts on this. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say, but I think, yeah, it, for me, the, the the interesting what appeals to me is this like spite. It's this idea that how come like I, I always I always hear of founders who don't know how to code and take very big pride in not knowing how to code, and they tell developers what to do. And they hire developers like they're fungible assets, and they tell developers what to do, and they get very, they do very well out of it. And I was like, okay, that's the bigger game, and and I want to play that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it discredits me a bit in in terms of like how serious I am about code because for me like. I, I don't care to get dragged into like the, the intimate details of internals and like API design and language superiority over you know, one, one language is more superior than the other. Uh, I just care about getting stuff done with whatever tools I have at my disposal. And if I have the minimum spanning set of tools uh, that I need to get a job done, pretty much good enough for me. Don't need to know everything. Yeah, a previous guest that I had on, she was arguing against like the the saviorism culture of tech, where it's okay, this technology is going to be the thing that like brings us into the future and saves everything. But at the end of the day, technology is just a tool. It's a tool to solve problems, and it's a tool to, like you said, it's just one part of of the overall value chain. It's the one part of the thing that makes money. It's not like something that you can just. Like, it's not valuable in and of itself in isolation, so to speak. And uh, I think I've taken up enough of your time, but you do have to end this. You have a new project that you're working on. So this is a collaborate. You have your new podcast collaboration with Randall Kenna. So how did that get started and how's that been so far? It got started basically because we were in adjacent markets. So she was giving the advice of like how to stand out as a developer. And a lot of her content was focused on junior developers, like how to get your first job, how you like set up your resume, stuff that I don't cover because I don't think those, I, I'm like distanced away from those things now that they don't even bother me. 
but they are they are super important for people starting out in the industry. Whereas I was more focused on like junior to senior, junior to senior, and like strategy stuff, that kind of thing. So I thought it was like a very good pairing of different audiences, different interests, and people who are interested in her stuff would be interested in my stuff. People interested in my stuff probably wouldn't be interested in hers. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other thing that I really like in this idea was like we both had put up books, but typically people view books as one-off things. Like you you write a lot. Then you have a big launch. Then you go around telling people how great your launch was, and that's it. But I think you could have that as a starting point and develop into an ongoing, recurring business, but then also develop the theories over time so that you, you get better versions every year, which is definitely my intention for my book. So I think, like, how do you basically, how do you keep up the engagement? So, right, so great, you put out a book. A lot of people haven't read it. Uh, a lot of people have heard about it and like don't know what it is. How do you like extend the brand or, or create new content that continues to help sell the book, spread the word, but then also give some value for people who already read the book. And I and so I was always interested in the, the idea of a podcast because it's a regular thing that you subscribe to that reminds you, hey, there's a book, and hey, you can buy it for whatever. And and if you already read it, like here's like additional content which you couldn't get uh, you know, out of just the just the book itself. And so I knew that was going to be a podcast, and I knew that I wanted I didn't want to do it alone. So I was looking around for people, and she was my first choice, and she said yes. So that was about it. And then the other I think the other interesting decision that we made was that it would be under 10 minutes every single episode. Uh, and I think this is idea of, yeah, there are a lot of people who want to start podcasts, especially during COVID. And one way you can stand out is to, is to make sure you deliver extreme value with the most focused conversation that you can have and no rambling. And we do a lot of editing. And, and also I think it should not take up too much of our time. Like both of us are very busy people. So uh, those are all the requirements that led to just adopting the, the short cast format that I, that I landed on. And I think it's, it's, a, it's definitely struck a chord because for sure, when I listen to my part, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I have the, I sort by duration and like the longest podcasts are at the top and the shortest podcasts are at the bottom. And like when I have a short amount of time, I scroll right to the bottom and I listen to those because like, I know, you know, it's not too much of a heavy commitment. So in a way, it's like SEOing for the bottom of your playlist and making sure if you have spare 10 minutes, that's, this is a good choice because we, we invested the time in, in something that is hopefully actionable for people. Yeah, that's the Career Chats podcast. Yeah, and I'll second the, your mission of making it super high value in such a short amount of time. It's, it definitely comes across as that. And at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's, it feels like a conversation. It doesn't feel like it was super heavily edited. So I'll commend you for that in however you're doing your editing. And I definitely recommend that everyone go and check it out. Career Chats Podcast. I'm guessing it's on all the major platforms. And so is there a yeah. website that people can find that on as well? That, that was a journey as well. It's careerchats.transistor.fm. That's the site that we use. We, we considered buying the domain, but I think we want it to be scrappy. And yeah, we're doing, we're doing everything ourselves right now, but we want to start paying for editors and stuff like that soon. Probably have to take, pick up some tips from you. But yeah, it's definitely, it's like a brand extension, but it's also, I think, a, a commitment that we do every week that actually helps us be more productive because we always have chats after. So it's like a mastermind. And then, and then you have our recorded conversation, but we definitely have ongoing discussions afterwards. That's a good excuse to just get together with a friend and just chat. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So... I, think everyone, I think everyone should do something like that, by the way. Yeah. I have a, have a peer, check in every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know there's a book that I really like that's that basically such so as that to have a have someone that has similar ambitions as you but is in a different industry so you don't like i don't know mix channels or whatever or 
aren't competing too much and just chat with them like once a month, just be extremely candid and yeah. hold each other accountable. And that's been extremely helpful for me specifically. Yeah. Thank you so much once again for coming on the podcast. This was such a wide-ranging conversation. And I, I always come away from these podcasts with everyone, especially with you, of, come, of having to look up so many different links, read so many things, and try and integrate them into action steps to take. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's a huge honor to be an early guest. And I, I'm, I'm going to be very lucky that I knew you before you're famous. <laughs> and I think you're doing extremely well. Congrats on everything that you've done so far. And thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Oh,